Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision making during a racial revolution. Stay tuned as we analyze Canadian news and Black issues on a weekly basis. And if you like what you hear, remember to subscribe. On this week's episode, we are joined by MPP Michael Coteau as we discuss some of the top headlines from the week of February 7th, including The Fed's Forgiving Serb Debt. Criticisms about Canada's vaccine failsafe. Trudeau committing the monies to transit. Durham and Halton regions are finding themselves in some Black History Month mess. The Dallas Mavericks and the Star Spangled Banner. Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. And plenty more. To kick off our politics segment... In December, we shared that for Black History Month, we'd be sitting down with four Black Canadian politicians who are having an enormous impact on policy while pushing for equity, diversity, and inclusion in Ontario. Last week, we had Councillor Ariel Kayabaga, City Councillor of London, and it was an engaging conversation both on her own political perspective as well as her thoughts on Canadian news and Black issues. On the second installment of our Black Political Leaders series, we're proud to welcome MPP Michael Coteau to the show. So, Michael, we're about to dive right into the news and Black issues. You ready? Let's do it. Awesome. Jumping to our first story of the day, for those who don't know, we've been experiencing a vaccine shortage because promised doses from Pfizer and Moderna have slowed down. Both companies said it was so they could scale up production on the back end, and many countries, not just Canada, were affected. The slowdown affected multiple countries in Europe. Italy even threatened to sue. Mexico, the UAE, and Bahrain had delivery problems too. At the same time this was happening, we already had agreements with the COVAX fund to both pay for fair vaccine distribution to middle and low-income countries like Jamaica and able and also to make sure we had access should we need it as well. And need it we did. Or at least it seems that's what the opposition wanted the government to believe. Because for weeks now, they've been making a stink of the slow rollout making a political issue out of a logistical one, causing Trudeau to claim the vaccines for ourselves to avoid any political fallout. But it looks like he played himself, didn't he? Because I don't think most Canadians are in a rush to be vaccinated. Of course, I could be wrong. Oxfam Canada and The One Campaign both say what the feds are doing is wrong and that it makes us look bad. They also say Canada must announce a clear strategy to restock the 1.9 million doses we've taken or we will be taking by June. For the record, Canada has pledged $220 million to COVAX, making us one of its leading donors, and another $865 million to the ACT accelerator. So I I wanted to discuss it like this, guys. Do we support Trudeau using the COVAX fund to get Canadians vaccinated before middle and low-income countries? And would we have been upset if he didn't use the option to get vaccines for ourselves? And finally, 
Could the opposition have successfully made an issue out of that instead? Who wants to go first? Well, I mean, of course they would have. Like, <laughs> if, if we did not say we were going to take back the vaccines that were intended for, um, you know, these other countries... Of, of course, like that would have been a huge issue, particularly from from the the right wing. But but I think like can we back up a little bit? Like so, sure. okay, Oxfam and and one campaign. Like, okay, do do they have the ability to to make a comment on that? Like, so do they know what the impact of us not having vaccines is going to do to our country and to our economy? I just I find that to be a little presumptive like like what the feds are doing is wrong uh it does make us look bad for sure but as the federal government their responsibility is to their constituents their residents their citizens not necessarily to the rest of the world and that the truth michael what do you think yeah i uh, i completely agree but you know the um the counter argument is if that's true then, you know, Canada is a non-producer of vaccines. Um, you know, all those other countries that are shipping them over here through, you know, uh, through agreements with Canada, you know, they could take the exact same position as Canada. That's true. And if that was the case, then there would be there would be no vaccines here. So we need to be very careful. You know, agreements are made. And if you're purchasing, you know, X amount from a country that is being, you know, these countries that are that are issuing these vaccines, um, they're in the exact same situation as Canada, you yeah. know, providing some of these smaller countries vaccines. They are they're giving up vaccines so Canadians can you know be safe mm-hmm. when their own people may not get it. So, you know, we need to are we part of, um, you know, a, is this part of a global agreement um, are we working, you know, together? Because yes, we're a country, um, but uh, but you know, our economies are connected to the Caribbean, to Latin America, and um, you know, our wealth is connected to those regions as well. Our economy. So we just need to be very careful. I understand um, uh, what you're saying, patients. Like I agree with it. Like the constituency you serve are Canadians. But that type of attitude internationally will end up uh, if if everyone kind of closes its borders, um, it's going to be very difficult for Canada as a non-producer of vaccines at this yep. point. Fair point. For yeah, sure. very good point. And I, I basically agree with the both of you, especially you patients in saying, you know, does Oxfam or or the One Foundation, like, do they know how this would impact Canada? Basically, my position is call out Trudeau. It's reasonable. But then call out the the like the opposition call out the opposition for making a stink out of this in the first place, because if it wasn't, we wouldn't be in this predicament. For the record, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, being the slimy fella he is, skirted the question of whether or not he'd accept the COVAX batch since he's all Canada first and shit, saying if he were PM when COVID hit, he would have handled this better, so this wouldn't have occurred in the first place. Why, whatever. Right. To me, that's BS, because the delay has everything to do with the manufacturers, And we're not the only countries experiencing this delay, as I've already pointed out. Further, it's the conservatives who sold off our R&D capability under Brian Mulroney while they were uh, on their drunk deregulation binge. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh said this whole thing highlights that our country should have had vaccine production capability all along. I hear that. Green leader Annamie Paul said, quote, there's a very big difference between having a right and doing what's right, and this isn't right, end quote. Well, 
Look at the enemy Paul schooling me, eh? Jumping to the Canadian economy, in what will be good news for a lot of entrepreneurs in particular, JT's government is forgiving CERB debt, saying so long as you met the criteria to get it in the first place, we won't have to repay it. Further, those who've already paid it back will get a refund. On top of that, any Canadian who got COVID income support like CERB won't have to pay on any outstanding income tax debt for 2020 until April 30th of 2022. Not bad, eh? And another thing. Those who do owe money but get income supports won't have those supports deducted at source to pay their debts. The feds say they're doing this because they recognize that 4.5 million people who are middle income and low income still need some flexibility navigating this COVID mess. And I'm all here for it. What do you guys think? Um, yeah, it's, it's, this is politics, right? It's, uh, it's, it's just, it's a difficult, it's a difficult situation to, uh, to talk about many people have so many different opinions and uh, at the end of the day you know the political parties are going to posture and 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 position themselves you know to to look good but at the end of the day we just need to do what's right for canada and uh, invest in the right uh, type of uh, technology in order to ensure that our citizens in the future have access to the right type of uh, you know technology and you know to to stay safe so uh, that that would be my position in trying to remove the partisanship as much as possible I hear that. My comment is probably going to be a little bit more conservative than than folks are expecting of me. <laughs> I, I I think that when we look at who is getting um, COVID income support, it isn't always our most underserved, right? We we talked before about how our most underserved and our most vulnerable are actually people who are on the front lines. So folks who are working at grocery stores, folks who are working at long-term care homes. And I'm more thinking about um, the the tax load on those folks, right? Um, so I, I, obviously this article doesn't speak to that specifically, but I if, if folks who got CERB don't have to pay it back um, and they don't have to pay any taxes on it until 2022, I wonder if there will be a little bit... I don't know, a, a little bit of, of a move to conservatism by folks who are traditionally vulnerable and have had to work through this pandemic. And, and maybe people might feel a little frowsy about it, you know, like, I don't know if that's something that people think about, but I think about that a lot because in my family I have a lot of, of people who work um, as care workers, either in retirement homes, long-term care homes, and, and as nurses in, in other health care facilities, and they're pissed. They're pissed that they, they have not had a day off. They're tired. And it, it kind of seems like, you know, some of the other people who obviously don't have access to employment right now, you know, are, are kind of getting a little bit of a great deal in this situation. I don't know. Does this ring a bell for anybody? Or is this my... Yeah. If I'm I, only off, hey. <laughs> I think you have a point. Definitely. Yeah, I was going to say, ahead. like, you know, so I just, um, I want to be clear that, you know, when it comes to actually... You know, the, when I was my last comment was speaking about just the entire issue around, you know, COVID and, and payments and vaccinations like this is a you know, it's a it, this is a, a Canadian um, a Canadian challenge. Um, and, you know, as politicians, we need to we really do need to work together uh, to figure out solutions. You know, CERB was just like it was one of those things that was put in place because we were in a, a pretty serious crisis as a country. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and people, uh, people, you know, were going through those challenges personally, and they needed money to, con- you know, a lot of people needed some type of assistance. Um, but it caused a lot of confusion because the rollout had to be instant. So the criteria were, it wasn't very clear to some people. There was maybe some confusion because there was multiple programs being put in place. Uh, but I, but I know this, that when you look at, you know, the provincial uh, versus the federal response to COVID, you know, Justin Trudeau's government took the burden of this entire uh, pandemic when it came to the economic cost to Canadians Absolutely. and bankrolled it yep. through, you know, through through borrowing and through investment. Whereas, you know, you take, for example, you know, the Ford government provincially, um, you know, it was literally like if the only thing that came to families now and, and maybe I'll ask you the two of you, can you identify one single financial resource that was provided to families and to individuals, not to businesses, to individuals from the provincial government during COVID. Can you name one? Not that wasn't. Funded no, I by can't. The, the only one that I know is a $200 grant that was issued uh, for parents uh, because their kids were staying home. Yeah. For the tech to repay the yeah, tech. Right? $200. So $200. Think, <laughs> you, you think about that. You think about like, if, if you're a family of four under Trudeau's government, you literally, I think, like I worked, I worked the numbers out before, but it was literally tens of thousands of dollars at the end, right, over the last several months. Yep. Um, and yep. and Doug Ford has the nerve, and the Conservatives in Ontario have the nerve to criticize, uh, you know, the Feds, uh, and 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 actually say they need to do more when these guys are sitting on, you know, billions of dollars, and um, even the vac- vaccine. You know, they're saying that the Feds need to you know, provide more vaccination. They're still sitting on, they've only used 18% of the rapid test. Um, you know, so That's Ontario's right. sitting on, like, literally, there's vaccines sitting in fridges uh, and not in, uh, in, in people's arms. And there's literally rapid tests collecting dust in Ontario. And at the same time, we have a premier complaining, saying that the feds are not doing enough, even though they've provided those resources, they haven't been used at the provincial level. So, you know, there's a lot we're going to learn from this in regards to, you know, who at the end of the day stepped up and actually invested in Canada and mm-hmm. provinces. And Justin Trudeau, to me, has done everything uh, possible uh, within reason to support businesses and to support individuals. And I think at the end of the day, people will recognize that. I agree. I I certainly hope so. I, I do know that um, typically conservative governments in Ontario tend to do well when the liberals are in power at the federal level. So I'm, I'm, I'm truly hoping that come 2022, we're not going to have a populace that thinks that Ford's been doing great and they don't actually appreciate where a lot of that support truly came from. But like you said, Michael and patience, we'll see how things go. Yeah. Only time will tell. Well, jumping to more good news for the economy at large, this week, PM Trudeau announced $14.9 billion over the next eight years on public transportation projects across the country, committing $5.9 billion to shovel-ready projects on a project-by-project basis starting this year. The rest will go towards a $3 billion permanent fund that provinces, territories, and cities will tap into as they need it. Trudeau said the funding could be used for everything from subway extensions and electrified transit fleets to walkways, cycling pathways, and projects to improve rural mobility. This sounds great, but what are the critics saying about it? I mean, in short, people are very happy. The Big City Mayor's Caucus of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, or FCM, is happy since a key demand of theirs, which is permanent and predictable transit funding, 
is finally a reality. Our own Mayor Don Tory was happy, signaling that although he doesn't know how much we'll actually get yet, he's confident we'll get a good share. And hopefully, he can put that funding to committing to the Eglinton East RT and a brand spanking new bus replacement service for the nearly 50,000 people who depend on the RT. I don't know. <laughs> Just an idea. The Canadian Urban Transit Association is super happy with the predictable funding, too. But they warn that cities need more operational funding, which the feds have already given through the Safe Restart Agreement, which is also coming to an end in a few months. The NDP agreed with that statement. Basically, <laughs> the only person to have a problem with this announcement was Andrew Scheer, <laughs> the conservative infrastructure critic saying, quote, Justin Trudeau hopes you'll be fooled by promises for the future when he can't get the job done today. Canadians deserve better, end quote. For the record, Trudeau's Liberal government has invested over $13 billion in more than 1,300 public transit projects across Canada since they came to power in 2015, and another $10 billion is set aside for transit through the government's larger infrastructure strategy called the Investing in Canada Plan. But that funding is going to expire in 2027-2028. Wednesday's announcement means cities can expect a predictable amount of funding indefinitely. So does anybody have a word they want to share on this announcement? Is it good? Bad? Do we need something else? What are your thoughts? How can transit be bad? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing about transit, though, what is what is transit going to look like 30 years from now? You know, mm. what will, you know, with automation and, uh, and self-driving cars and, and AI, uh, with loop technology, high-speed transit, uh, you know, what will the world look like uh, 30 years from now? What will, will our roads look like 30 years from now? Um, so, yes, infrastructure investment is incredible. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, as, a, uh, as, a, as an Ontario member of provincial parliament, you know, I, uh, I'm personally thankful to the prime minister for this predictability and the stability within transportation funding, which, you know, often lacks uh, when it comes to the trilateral agreements between municipalities, provinces, and, uh, and the federal government. So predictability is a great thing and stability is a great thing. But the big question for me is, you know, the future of transit, what is it going to look like? And how are we going to get to that space where we're all on the same page as politicians and communities uh, in regards to the way the world will look when we're really old? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of wanted to bring up because you you stay thinking about the future when it comes to transit. You are actually calling for uh, uh, free transit within the decade, weren't you? Yeah, I think that um, I think that transit is going to ch- is going to change uh, completely. I think that the the cost of transit is going to uh, reduce uh, be reduced drastically because of uh, you know just uh, renewable energy and uh, just the greeting of technology. And uh, I think that if we really want to think about the environment and uh, and climate change and at the same time, you know, make the best use of space, um, you know, we should consider uh, making transit free in cities like Toronto, uh, where we have uh, or at least certain lines like, you know, the young lines, the the, you know, the Bloor line places where people can, you know, move a lot just to get them around. So, you know, I have been thinking about the future. And um, have you seen like, for example, have you seen the Uber uh, the new Uber flying uh, vehicles that they've uh, that they're pushing out yeah. next year. Oh, it's yeah. incredible. The world's changing so quickly. Um, the fact that they say thirty percent of our of our space in the city of Toronto or in cities are parking lots, and with uh, with self driving cars, you know all that space will never be needed again in the next thirty forty years. 
Like, what does that mean? You know, you take a place like New York City, and with a ten-year a ten-year period, they went from all horses to all cars within ten years. Wow. You know, so the world's going to change, and uh, we're going to be lucky enough to see that change. But as politicians and as community members, we need to be thinking about that because I don't believe that, you know, it's in our mindset at this point. But it's really enjoyable uh, talking on your your, your show. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the work that both of you are doing. Thank you. Yeah, it's really it's really great. And you're you're really good at it. So. You know, I'm going to make sure I'm a constant subscriber and listening to the podcast every single time it comes out. So every spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine with the weather warming up. It feels easier to get into the rhythm of things, whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk. Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Person matters. Every subscriber <laughs> matters. So thank you. Thank you so much. For yeah. That. And when you get your Spotify, you know, $25 million contract, don't forget about me. <laughs> oh, you know what you want. No, no, no. <laughs> Nice. Thank you so much. Okay, and listen, if if I can help in any way, identify people, you know, if you need someone to come on ever, you know, uh build a relationship, connect, like anything, just call me. I'm I'm here to help. Man, what a good conversation that was, eh? All that was missing was some good vino. Unfortunately, Michael couldn't stay for the full episode since he had another pre-booked engagement to be at. But don't fret. He'll be back. Moving on to blackity black, black news. Durham region fails hard with their Black History Month scavenger hunt. God. The region of Durham is facing backlash after what's being described as a tone deaf scavenger hunt meant to mark Black History Month has surfaced online. According to the photos of the activity, employees were encouraged to one dance to a reggae song, to cook an African meal, or three, have a conversation with a Black employee. Oh, what a Ross. Honestly. Selena Cesar Chavan is one of the many people who took issue with the event. The former MP for Whitby and current Durham Region residents told CP24 Wednesday evening that the activity and the response that followed are a, quote, slap in the face end quote, to community members and employees in the region who are Black. She says, quote, I think it's very unfortunate that the region of Durham not only decided to trivialize Blackness through this game or scavenger hunt, but didn't even have the decency to apologize to Black communities for what they've done, end Mm. quote. And and frankly, like, I mean, they, they even released a second statement, Curtis. And in that second statement, the region of Durham said, Quote, we recognize that missteps were made with this virtual challenge. For that, we apologize and we will continue to do better. You know, 
end quote. What I would like to do with this story and the next story, Curtis, Mm. is have a bit of a conversation of what Black History Month looks like from this year forward, mm-hmm. given what happened last year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so let, let's let's then let, let's now talk about what, what's happening in Halton. So in another example of government bodies using their resources to distract us, <laughs> um, in honor of Black History Month, the Halton Regional Police Service and its Black Internal Support Network are proudly, and I say proudly, soliciting the community's help in the design and creation of a Black Heritage Police Cruiser. Deputy Chief Roger Wilkie says, quote, due to the pandemic, we are unfortunately unable to organize or participate in Black History Month events like we historically have. This cruiser is a way for us to highlight our commitment, to <laughs> highlight our commitment. <laughs> you know, if you see my face the entire time you're talking. <laughs> To working, to working with and learning more about our region's African and Caribbean community, not only during Black History Month, but year round, end quote. Another person, Constable David Joseph, who proposed the design project in collaboration with the network, says, quote, this wrapped vehicle will symbolize the service's commitment to and solidarity with the Black community. Huh? Together with our community partners, we hope this project will help expand our collective awareness and appreciation of Black heritage in Halton. Now, I, I, this is this becomes even more problematic when they are they are highlighting community partners that have supported them in this initiative. Yep. And I I, I, I was going to name them, but I don't think it's. I don't think I want to shame them quite quite this much, so I'm going to leave it alone. But I want to I want to mention two things. Nowhere in the Halton Regional Police Services statement is there an acknowledgement of anti-black racism and its role in the over policing of black neighborhoods or the over incarceration of black men in Halton region. Why? And this is the obvious question that everyone, I, I, I hope, is thinking. Okay. Why, instead of committing to decorating a police cruiser, do you not acknowledge all of the Black folks who have been wrongly arrested and imprisoned in your region due to anti-Black racism? This multiculturalism stuff that we did 10, 15, 20 years ago is over. Where have they been? And same for Durham. So, Curtis, I want to know, what are your thoughts on what's happening in Durham? Or what has happened in Durham? And what are your thoughts on what has happened in, in Halton? Yep, yep. Uh, Durham, Halton, the TTC. Uh, what happened with the TTC? The TTC show. So here's the thing. The TTC, they they wrapped the bus in Jean Augustine, which was great. But then they also, uh, so I should clarify, a union within the TTC, mm-hmm. they decided to put on display a white woman for Black History Month. Oh my gosh. This white woman has a, she was apparently raised by black. No, 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 I know. I know. Trust me, but I'm I'm just giving the details raised by a black family and her husband, I believe is black. Uh, And so apparently it was to showcase, uh, I don't don't even know what to say because I was about to say show her experiences in black history month. How does that make any sense? How does that make any sense? (laughs) It doesn't make sense. Like I'm explaining it and it's like, so here's the thing. I, I'm asking how this makes sense to people. And at the same time, I know that unfortunately for many white folks, and this isn't this isn't necessarily an indictment on them, but they 
they, they just don't have the capacity to understand where we're coming from here yet. Hmm. Um, you know, and where I'm coming from in saying that is, for example, just this week, I watched a brand new documentary. Actually, I, I sent it to you, Patience. Uh, yes, you did. On, um, James Baldwin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, And one of the things that he portrayed throughout that 30 minute documentary, at least to me, was, you know, he didn't even want to engage with the white folks who were trying to understand him until they reached a certain level of understanding. Yeah, yeah. And that's essentially what we're dealing with here. I mean, yeah, there there are definitely people who are just racist and, and don't want to be better. But overwhelmingly, we have a problem where a lot of white folks don't have the capacity to understand Black issues, systemic racism more broadly, um, and that's what that's what we see is manifesting here. What, what I, lo- I loved what you said about the James Baldwin thing because you're right. Like we need white Canadians to get to a certain education level mm-hmm. before they can start to plan these things. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, like, in order to let, let's, let's start with Durham, I guess. Yeah. In order to um, really acknowledge and celebrate Black History or Black Black History Month and Black people. You, you shouldn't overburden them with, you know, having conversations. So because the, the third example was that, you know, that that all of the, the folks who are participating should have a should have a conversation with a black employee. Bother them at work. What? Exactly. As you can imagine, they're, they're probably, you know, one to five percent of, of the Durham of, of Durham region's employee base. And so then you have one to five percent of people having to service the the institution by having conversations with all of these non-black people like you, you don't realize how how much of a burden that is how burdensome that can be that's the first thing the other two things were just like how does dancing to a reggae song help you learn anything about black history month like who- I, I think so 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 selena said it desmond said his piece as well and i want to read what desmond said because he said uh, an activity like this really shows how desperate workplaces are to avoid talking about black peace, uh, black people's real issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. Desperate. Yeah. Yeah. And the trivialness of, of, of what they offered. Yeah. Oh my God. And is it, is it because, did you think it's because of, of George Floyd or do you think it's because of the pandemic? Because uh, I, I don't think I remember this kind, this level of desperation before. And, and I think because they're not able to, you know, serve like Jamaican patties and, and you know, show that they that they really appreciate Black culture in, in some of those more tokenistic surface ways that they're freaking out and, and do like really showing how, how little they know and how little maybe they care. Uh, about changing the lived experiences of Black people in Ontario. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that it's probably how little they know. I yeah. mean, there are clearly many people who, again, don't want to change. But that we also know, based on this conversation we've been having since last April, right, that there are many people who do absolutely want to be better. So, um, look, this is this is a a terrible example. What it highlights is that. They got to have black people sitting at the table. And quite frankly, if you're going to be doing anything for us, it must include us. It's, it's really that simple to me. But so I'm sorry, I have to push back here. Please go ahead. I, sorry, because I just wanted to wrap up. Go ahead. In the, in the Halton region case, they did 
they they did include organizations. I, I said that I wasn't going to name them, but I think yeah. maybe maybe I I don't know maybe I named them because uh, they have six black organizations here who were included in their de- the development of this design competition. Mm-hmm. And I I have been on roundtables before mm-hmm. where they call black people to the table and they don't listen to us. Mm-hmm. And they they do what they wanted to do in the first place. I'm not particularly sure if that's what's happened because I haven't heard the other five organizations speak out and say we didn't this want it. We too, yeah. Right. But uh, there is some responsibility when you get invited to a round table of this nature and Halton, you know, says that they want to do this design competition. You need to be one of the people around the table who says that this is not appropriate. Or if they, if, if you say that and they don't listen to you, you need to speak out publicly and say that this is that, that not make it like you can't, you, you can't like, th- this is, I don't know. It's, I don't, I think, I don't think it's, it's not bad in the same ways as what Durham did, but yeah. it's, it just by completely ignoring what I would argue is one of the most profound barriers for the black community, which is over incarceration and over policing mm-hmm. by just ignoring that and inviting black children or black people to participate in designing one of your cruisers, cruisers that in these communities that are being over-policed is a symbol of fear. I, I just, I don't, pardon? I, I just had a major disconnect. Yeah, like, uh, like you've unplugged. Like, I, like this is not even, it's really bad. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. It goes back to what I was saying. They, they, they just do not, a lot of people who have the power do not have the competency at this time. Moving on to news from the world. So we we know that during the the Barack Obama administration there was a push to put Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. Culture critic Brittany Cooper and actually professor at Rutgers University as well, has taken to Time Magazine to share how this ain't it. It it really ain't it. First, let me walk through what the plan is. The Biden administration has announced its plan to return to an Obama-era initiative to put Harriet Tubman on the front of the U.S. $20 bill. Her image would replace Andrew Jackson, who, in case you didn't know, is a notoriously racist president known both for owning hundreds of slaves and for his brutal and genocidal policy of Indian or what we would refer to now as indigenous removal. Uh, Based on the current designs, Andrew Jackson would remain on the back of the bill. Harriet Tubman would grace the front. So I guess it's a bit of a compromise or balance, as Mm -hmm. Curtis would say. Many Americans across the racial spectrum are excited about this tribute to Tubman. They view it as progress, as a necessary and long overdue disruption of the American founding father's narrative, which I couldn't agree with more. Mm-hmm. Cooper does not agree. Cooper says putting Tubman on legal tender when slaves in the U.S. were treated as fungible commodities is a supreme form of disrespect. Mm-hmm. According to her, quote, the imagery of her face changing hands as people exchange cash for goods evokes for me disconfiding, uncomfortable scenes of enslaved persons being handed over as payment for white debt 
or for anything white slaveholders wanted. She claims that if Tubman is going to be linked to conversations on capital, that conversation must be about a redistribution and refunneling of resources and money into Black communities to deal with wealth and wage disparities, access to education and safe housing, and a comprehensive plan of action to redress the social determinants of poor Black health. And anything else is just downright disrespectful. Mm. What do you think about this, Curtis? I see her point, generally speaking. Um, but I think it's possible to, you know, put Harriet on the $20 bill and do everything that she's calling for, which in, 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 you know, day by day, Biden's administration is putting into place. Um, so I, I think it goes back to the balance point, right? It's, uh, I get, again, I get what Cooper is saying about Harriet being passed around you know, different people's hands to pay for things. But uh, it also has the capacity to maybe not spark a conversation, but add more color to the conversation about America's history. I agree with that. I really do think, and and I would go back to your original word, I do think it can spark a conversation or spark a reminder in people's minds that this is part of America's history. This is also what America was built on. Exactly. Now, what I what I also said when we first talked about it was, um, I mean, what I just said was a very idealistic position in the sense that we've already spoken about the fact that many people don't actually have the capacity to understand that yet or to appreciate the true history of the United States, the, the duality. You know what? I shouldn't even say duality because it's not just black and white. There's indigenous too. So. Right. But you get what I'm trying to say. Um, right. Most people don't have the capacity to truly understand and appreciate American history. So from that point of view, then the question is, does this hurt or help? And I honestly don't know yet. Hmm. Maybe I'm a bit too intellectual for this. <laughs> There's a lot of points that, that I that I feel like we, we both know and we're, we're taking for granted in this conversation, which is that let's let's talk about who is currently on legal tender in the U.S., mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. These are almost all men who have owned slaves. Yeah. And we treat these people as our heroes, as people who built the nation. Right. So I understand that there's a problem with, you know, black people being on legal tender that exchanges hands, but you never had a problem with Andrew Jackson being on the bill all this time though. And that's been exchanging hands. I agree 100% and I didn't say it, but I was thinking that too, but I, I couldn't really formulate my position. Like, yeah. I, but I agree 100%. It's like, why yeah. we, weren't, we weren't, we're not upset about white people being on the paper. Yeah, it's, it's so strange. And, and if we're saying that, you know, Andrew Jackson, whatever, helped to write the Constitution or, and, you know, some other white people helped to, you know, build the White House. I don't know what people did, but Harriet Tubman helped to build freedom into that country or build emancipation. It's like she helped in a, in a more profound way than all of those founding fathers, I would argue. Mm. Um, in terms of individual mm-hmm. contributions. So I think that it, we, we need to really see different folks on legal tender as a reminder that this is who America is by only yeah. seeing white people on legal tender, on TV, in the movies, you know, it yeah. reinforces the fact that this is a white country. And I would yeah. say the same for, you know, whoever would be an appropriate um, representation of the indigenous community in the United States as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that that we, we need to remember that you they, they didn't settlers didn't come here to empty land. 
Jumping to questions for the audience. So modeling from the Dalai Lama School of Public Health at U of T shows cases and deaths are likely to rise in a big way, even as Doug Ford attempts to reopen the province. Just this week, we heard that Ontario could see between 5,000 and 6,000 cases by month's end. So should we be reopening despite the fact that we're clearly careening toward disaster? Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We're releasing pods on a weekly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. We now have our own Instagram page dedicated to the podcast. Follow us at The Drift To. Black people, we hope that you know that this is a safe space for you. So if you have any feedback or questions, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Stephen Fissett who graciously provided artwork for this podcast. If you like what you see, you can find him on Instagram at Scarborough Debutante. That's Scarborough, D-E-B-U-T-A-N-T-E for all your graphic design needs. See y'all next time. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.